Uh, we're in Isaiah. Please turn there with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 51. There are Bibles in the back. You may want to open up your app, uh, but you need to follow along. Um, the text is kind of in and out. Uh, I'll explain more, uh, but you'll need, you'll need the Word of God in front of you. Again, there's Bibles in the back. Open up your app to open up uh, and turn to Isaiah chapter 51 together. So we've been walking through this book. We're going to take a break again. This is the second break we've taken. We're going to look at the book of Colossians right after Easter. But meanwhile, we're going to go through this next section, chapters 40 through chapter 55, uh, as the next, next major section in the book of Isaiah. So that's where we are. As a way of reminder, we're in chapter 51. Isaiah has two audiences. Remember the contemporary audience in which he's speaking to around the, in the, around the, the 8th century. And he's speaking and writing and prophesying to about 150 years later to the exile. Those who have been taken exile by the Babylonians and brought to the, uh, the Babylonian Empire. Um, and now they, they have the scroll of Isaiah. So although Isaiah is speaking to the 8th century, uh, he's speaking directly to the 6th century in the exile in his prophecies. And they have the scroll. And they have what Isaiah wrote 150 years earlier while they're in exile. It's very important. We've been calling the series the gospel according to Isaiah because in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their rebellion and their discipline, both the Assyrian army for the northern kingdom, the Babylonian army and the southern kingdom, both God used to chastise his people. Um, they've been living in sin and rebellion. But God has been speaking mightily throughout Isaiah about his grace and his redemptive purposes. And all that comes together in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is all over the book of Isaiah. In fact, we saw in chapters 1 through 39, one of the ways in which Isaiah points to Jesus and reveals Jesus to us is that he is the coming king. Chapters 1 through 39. He's the true and better king, better than any other king could possibly be in Israel or in Judah. He will sit on his throne of his father David. He will reign and rule in an everlasting kingdom with perfect righteousness and perfect justice. In fact, chapter 39 ended with, with the hope of a better king, right? Hezekiah kind of, Hezekiah kind of, Hezekiah kind of crashed and burned. That's a lot of words right there. The next section, chapters 40 through 55, Jesus is portrayed by Isaiah as the true and better servant of the Lord. Okay, catch that, servant of the Lord. And over and over, Isaiah has been talking about Cyrus, who will be the king in Persia. That God will use him to serve him in a way that will release God's people from captivity and send them back to the promised land. Cyrus is a type of servant of the Lord. He's a type of Messiah. Chapter 45 of Isaiah calls him the anointed one. But he's a foreshadow. He's, he's a type. He's pointing to the, to the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate servant of the Lord, and that is Jesus Christ. And up to now, as we've seen in the second section here, in the midst of calling God's people out from their idolatry, their failure to listen and repent of their sins, God has been revealing his promised salvation. Not only in the coming of Christ, but in his second coming as well. How a redeemed remnant will gather together for God's glory and his honor. He's the Holy One of Israel. And it's not just the Babylonian uh, um, exile that they'll be released from. But more important, they'll be released from the bondage of sin, the bondage of death and hell. And Isaiah has been poetically showing us the days when God's remnant and his, his people will be gathered from all over the world, from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, and will gather in the worship of the Lord, all made possible through the servant of the Lord, 
Jesus the Christ. So far we've learned in chapter 42 that this servant of the Lord will have the spirit rest upon him. He will be gentle. The servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, he will be gentle. He will open the eyes of the blind. He will set prisoners free. He will not grow faint. He will not be discouraged. He will bring justice to the nations. Chapter 42, 1 through 9. Chapter 49, 1 through 7, the servant of the Lord describes himself as someone who has the authority to command all the earth to come before him. That he was called before the foundations of the world. That he will come as the prophet par excellence and will glorify the Father as he restores the, the Israelites back to the Father and as he restores the Gentiles to God as well. He will be the light to the nations. We learned that in chapter 49. Last week we saw this description of the servant of the Lord uh, and it's really important how the servant of the Lord's perfect obedience, even in the midst of, of suffering, we'll pick that up in chapter 42 and late 42 and early 43, uh, even in the, in the servant's, servant's obedience, even in the midst of suffering, has, has led God to declare that the son, that the servant of the Lord is righteous. That's really important. We'll see it today. He has intrinsic righteousness because of his obedience in all that he does. And we ended chapter 50 last week with a stark contrast. If you have your Bibles open, you can see the last two verses. On the one side, there are those who, who fear God. We talked a lot about that last week. That's a reverence. Uh, they stand in awe of God. Now, those are not only uh, ones who obey the voice of the servant, but when they walk in darkness, in, in darkness of captivity and exile and humiliation, they must rely and trust in the Lord, chapter 50, verse 10. That was in contrast the other side of that was those who are trying to light their own way. We see that in verse 11 of chapter 50. They're lighting their own torches. They're carrying their own torches, trying to do things on their own. And it says in the last part of chapter 50, they will lie down in torment. Now, you know the number is 50, 51, and Isaiah was not in the original. So when we pick up in chapter 51, it is speaking to those same ones in chapter 50, verse 10, those who fear the Lord. Those who have reverence and awe of God. Those who obey the word of the servant of the Lord. He, they're, they're relying upon God. They're trusting in God. And now chapter 51 opens up speaking to them. Okay, it makes sense. So that's where we're at. Chapter 51, open up your Bibles. Let me read to you verses 1 through 8. Chapter 51 of Isaiah, verses 1 through 8 for now. Listen to me. You who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But 
My salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor dismayed at the reviling. For the mouth will eat them up like a garment. The worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy, inspired, and fallible word. One through eight, we'll see, as you can see up on the screen, three, three headings. Listen up. He starts off 51. Listen up. Next will be wake up and then stand up. Real simple. Listen up, wake up, stand up. So in chapter 51, verse 1, the chapter opens with these, this, this word of expectation, maybe we could say, the word of encouragement to those who are described, as I said early in chapter 50, verse 10, as, as, as listening to the voice of the Lord, obeying the voice of God. Here in chapter 1, same people now are described as those who are pursuers of righteousness and seekers of the Lord. They're called to listen to me. Uh, who's speaking? God's speaking. The servant of the Lord is speaking. I think, uh, you know, we we believe in the Trinity, the triunity of God. God is one, Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons. I think think what you have here is both of them. I think you have in view that when, when you listen and you obey the voice of the servant of the Lord, and you listen and obey the voice of God, you're listening to God. The people's desire here is seen as, as characterized by, by doing what's right, by listening to the Lord, by, by doing righteous things, by, by obeying the voice of the servant. Since God is the one who acts with perfect righteousness, we could say that their pursuit of righteousness would involve ways in which the righteousness of God has been revealed. In other words, a way in which they are following the will and following the ways of the righteousness of God. Like loving others as God loves us. Like walking in humility. Like walking in caring and loving for others. Like seeking Christ. Like sitting under the word. We saw that with even the servant of the Lord. How he just listens and he follows and he obeys what God has to say, and that's what righteousness looks like, following the ways of the Lord. But I think it's important, and you can underline this in your Bible, that it doesn't just say that these people were seeking right actions. It doesn't just say that they were just seeking righteousness, because what happens is if, only, if you only seek for, for righteousness, if you only seek for right actions, you are seeking self-justification, and you are trying to do things in your own way, in your own power, and have your own list of rules, do's and don'ts. They are not seeking which leading to self-righteousness. They're pursuing God. So they're seeking righteousness, trying to do what's right, but they're seeking the Lord. And when you seek the Lord, at the end of the day, you recognize that the only true righteousness one can truly obtain is not your own. It's a gift from God. It's like reading chapter 5, or a Sermon on the Mount. If you walk away from that saying, I can do that, you've read it wrong. <laughs> and God exhorts these faithful ones, and he commands them to, to look at the rock. Look, look to the rock, verse 1b, from which you hewn. Verse 2, look to Abraham. Look, look to your father, uh, Abraham, your father, and to Sarah. What he's saying, really, using these metaphors, he's saying, look and consider your origin. Consider your identity. Consider the fact that you were called out of a pagan land, out of the rock, 
Consider that one man was called, his name was Abraham, had no children, was called out of the pagan land of Ur and to a place God would show him. And it says so that he might bless him, that's Abraham, he might multiply him. We see that in verse 2, we see it in Genesis 12 and 15. And that the whole world will be blessed through this man. Of course, Sarah as well. In fact, look at the uh, verse 2, the, the, word, the Hebrew word look is the same verb that God used, remember, remember the story in Genesis, we went through that years ago. And God brings Abraham outside in chapter 15 and says, look man, look at the sky. Look at all those stars. Count them. Look. That will be your offspring. So shall your offspring be. Chapter 15 of Genesis. Then verse 6, next verse. And he believed the Lord. That's Abraham. I believe you. I trust you. I have faith in you. You'll do what you say you will do. It says, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed God and righteousness was imputed to him. Isaiah is here called to look with expectation of the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. All that God has done through Abraham in the past, and, and to believe that God yet has future promises he will fulfill. That's the point. The barren Zion will have children from around the world. He will keep his promise, and that's their comfort, verse 3. And part of that promise in the past will be fulfilled in the future, and that's what Isaiah is doing here. He's looking back, he's looking forward, he's looking back, he's looking forward, because the future, there's a transformation of his people transforming her wilderness and desert into the Garden of Eden, like the Garden of the Lord, verse 3. Dr. Oswald, great commentary, said this, God has promised blessing for curse, fullness for emptiness, Eden for wilderness. With the allusion to the Garden of Creation, we go behind Abraham for the origin of the people. Isaiah is saying that Israel's origins lie in the fact that the God of creation is not willing to let his people receive the just results of their sin. It is his settled purpose for his people to take them out of the wilderness, things that they did on themselves, and restore to them a garden of God's own making. And then he writes, What other response to grace like that could there be but rejoicing, joy, thanksgiving, and melody? End quote. It's exactly what it's saying. The joy and singing that will accompany the restoration of God's land and God's people. A drastic change, right? Of their attitude, we saw it earlier, that they felt alone. We talked about that last week. And rejected. Here is this glorious scene. Uh, its ultimate fulfillment is not in the return from Babylon to, the, to Jerusalem, but much greater. A, a greater uh, in, influx of all these people as they gather and worship the Lord. I believe... You mentioned, I mentioned before, begins with the thousand literal reign of Christ on earth, the millennial reign of Christ. You want to talk about it as being just when Christ restores the whole earth, you go right ahead. But I see this happening first in the, in the millennial reign. And, and, he, and, and Isaiah is connecting their origins, remember where you came from, and with the promised future. An image of beauty and richness, curses removed, restoration, new heavens, new earth, ultimately. And the world and all its promises, uh, excuse me, all its uh, problems are are washed away. Remember, God's people are reading this. Their Jerusalem is in rubble, destroyed, burned to the ground. 
And yet God says, remember the past promises I've made, and now remember I will fulfill my promises in the future. A promise of, of, of plush paradise, rejoicing, singing, dancing unto the Lord. You know, part of my job as one of your pastors here is to remind you of the faithfulness of God. How God has been faithful to you, has been faithful to me in the past. Why? So that we can have hope as we move on in the future. I don't know what it is with us humans, but (laughs) we are very forgetful. It seems like every time we run into a a brick wall, some sort of, uh, of serious trial, we are quick to forget how God has been faithful to us in the past. Right? You know the story, Joshua 3, God miraculously brings them through the Jordan River, stops flowing into the promised land, and what does God do? God says, go get 12 stones from the Jordan, set it up as a memorial, remembrance of what God did for you on this day. And why would God do that? Because he knows we have spiritual amnesia. He knows that we forget, he gives us memorials. He commands us to do things and remind us as we take of the Lord's Supper as a remembrance. We take of communion, remembering the day in which you made a, a public profession of your faith, commanded in Scripture. And if you have not been baptized, there's a class today, just a shameless plug. Stay after class. <laughs> you know what else happens in Joshua, the next chapter? God tells them the reason why I did is not only for you to remember, But if you read on, it says, so that you will tell it to other people. Sometimes, family, it is is necessary and good to talk about the faithfulness of God to others. To talk about how God's been faithful to you, particularly in the gospel. Sharing your faith, telling them about the saving work of Jesus, telling about how God has answered prayer. Tell him, telling others when God said no, how important it was when you look back and say, I'm glad he didn't answer that prayer. The faithfulness of God, right? We partake of communion. We, we take in our hands the bread and we, and we drink of the cup. We partake of a meal. We're remembering the, the death and burial of Christ. Now, I know communion is more than just memorial, but it is that. It is to remember. Next, they should listen and look up because of God's deliverance, verse 4. Now remember the past, but look at God's deliverance, verse 4 through 6. Possessive noun, give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation. Right, no matter what they've done in the past, we saw rebellion after rebellion after rebellion. No matter how much they've sinned, they're, they're seeking the Lord, their they're covenant promise that God has made, they are his. He is their faithful redeemer. All the promises that were made to Israel are theirs. All the promises made to us are ours. Aren't you glad that God doesn't change and and, and renege on his promises because of our hard-headedness? We would be done. No matter how much we've done in the past, God is faithful. For when the law, he writes, meaning the word and the will of God, not just the Torah, but all the world, will and word of God. When the law goes out from him, it says his justice will shine. And as he fills the promises to Israelites, he will lead many Gentiles out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what that means in verse 5. We'll, we'll judge the people. 
He will, he will give attention, verse 4, I'm sorry. And I will set my justice for light to the peoples. It's not just Israel, it is all the people. That's what he's saying there. And when the righteousness draws near, verse 5, and his salvation has gone out, look what it says, he will judge justly, and all those who hope and wait upon the Lord will experience God's arm. Notice that. We'll see it again in a little bit. That's his, his, his power, his deliverance, his authority. His delivering power. Righteousness draws near. Salvation has gone out. Deliverance will come. What does that sound like? It's the gospel. Romans chapter 3 verse 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Right before, listen. The righteousness of God is first and foremost a person. His name is Jesus. Righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been drawn near. Apart from the law, you can't do it by earning it. The righteousness of God through what? Faith, Romans tells us. In Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction, Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's judgment. That's truth. As righteousness is revealed, truth is declared, And then Paul writes on, they are justified, made right with God, by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, there's the deliverance. Whom God put forth forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation, the turning away and averting of God's wrath through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That's God's arm. That's his delivering power. And although the heavens will what? Vanish like smoke, the scripture says, and the earth wear out like a garment, verse 6, God's salvation will be forever, and his righteousness will never be dismayed. Will never be dismayed, verse 6, meaning shattered or broken. It will never be shattered, broken, or dashed to pieces. He's talking more about just Babylon. Just as Cyrus was, the king of Persia, was called to deliver and allow the Israelites to go back. They, they were set free through Cyrus from, the, from the, the clinches of Babylon. God is going to use the servant of the Lord to deliver the world from the grips and clenches of sin. But those who dwell in it, see what it says. Middle of verse 6, those who dwell in it, meaning those who, have, who put all their hope in man in this world will not last It says those who pursue things on their own, it will wear out and they will vanish. They will not last. I mean, think about that for a moment. All the earthly existence, the one that we experience right now, touch, feel, all the senses, is going to vanish and wear out. With it, all those who put their trust in this world. That is not a prevailing (laughs) worldview. People are clinging to this world. People cling and hope in things that are temporal. But Scripture informs us that the ultimate enduring eternal reality is, 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 is Christ and a new heaven and a new earth. That is what is unseen, not what is seen. I think that's why there's so much fear today. Whether it came through this pandemic or whether it's whatever it may be, when all you have and all you cling to is temporal and in this world. And it's 
threatens you or it's been threatened to take from you, fear will grip your heart. But when your faith is in the unseen, when your faith is in the promises of God, when, the faith, when your faith is in the coming reality of the new heavens and the new earth and the righteous, reigning, ruling servant of the Lord, we don't fear. We're grounded in Christ, we won't fear. He's our sure and real hope for our future. Isaiah says, look, look back to God's past faithfulness for the hope of the future. Again, look, look to God as the Redeemer, our Deliverer, verses 4 through 6. And now look, look in, but fear not. God has secured our future. Look at verses 7 and 8. They're just not, it's not just seeking the Lord, as we saw in first, verse 1. They're not merely mindful that the Lord goes out for them. Look what it says in verse 7. Listen to me, you who what? Know. You who know. You, you who have experienced and know, yada. It's not just intellectual. It's, it's, it's heart. It, it's experience. You who know righteousness. For in their heart is the law from God. It guides their behaviors and beliefs. What he's talking about is that they know personally their God. It's not just a set of rules. It's not just do's and don'ts. It's that I know righteousness because I know my God. I have a personal relationship with the living God. And when that happens and you're following the living God and you're, and you're, and you're uh, worshiping the living God and you're following the will and ways of the living God, look what happens. Unbelievers, it says, are reproaching and reviling them, 7b. But God says, listen, that's going to happen, but don't lose heart. Listen, don't fear them and don't lose hearts. Family, we've been saying this for months. There's coming a day and has maybe has already passed. The decision must be made. Will you, will I stand on the word of God, the promises and the will of God? Because when we do, we will face opposition. The world and its culture, this is nothing new. It just seems to be ramped up here. The world is, is in opposition against the will and the ways of the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.12, written 2,000 years ago. Indeed, Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I'm not saying let's go out and be an idiot and just kind of bash people and talk trash. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when you stand on God's word and God's will and God's righteousness, you're the odd one out. Get used to it. And I've said this before too, we've got to figure out a way where we could stand on the word of God and still be gracious. To, to stand on the truth, the moral truths, and the commands of scripture and still love people. We've got to figure that out. You know, we could be afraid of a lot of things, what people can do to us, but we can overcome our fears. When we know righteousness, name is Jesus. When the law of God and the word of God is in our heart. When we trust and rely upon God and his word. We should learn to fear God and obey him more than we do others. No matter how threatening, no matter how powerful they may be, we stand with Christ. Do you realize that when you fear others and other things, no matter what it may be, it's really a a, a sin or really rebellion against God? It's the opposite of faith. I'm not talking about caution. 
We're not talking about concern. We're talking about being gripped with fear and not faith. That's what we're talking about. And in the end, all those who oppose God will be, what does it say, like a garment, a piece of wool, eaten by moth, eaten by worms. But those who pursue, verse 1, and possess righteousness, verse 7, need not fear the rebukes and reproaches of, of unbelievers. No matter what they put on us. But why? Because God's salvation, look what it says, the end of verse 6. God's salvation is what? Forever. His righteousness will be never dismayed. It's for all generations. Notice if you have your Bibles open also. I want to point this out while we're here. Verses 5 through 7. Just notice how righteousness and salvation are closely connected. Notice that. Verse 5. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out. Verse 6, but my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Verse 7, but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to what? All generations. Many times we talk about salvation, we think about, rightfully so, forgiveness of sins. Salvation from, from the penalty of our sins through the sacrifice and substitute of Jesus who died as an atonement for sin. The Bible says in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, what? There is no forgiveness of sins. And that's true, gloriously so. But forgiveness of sin is not all that is necessary for our salvation. Now, before you burn me at the stake, let me explain. We're still unrighteous. Not in the sense that we don't know what's right or we shouldn't do what is right, But the righteousness that is required to enter into a relationship with a holy, pure, and perfect God who cannot and will not ever embrace sin or darkness cannot be, that requirement cannot be done by ourselves. It it is impossible to achieve the required righteousness that God requires to have a relationship with a pure and holy God. The Apostle Paul tried it. We saw that in Philippians 3. Worked his bones off. According to the law, blameless, he said. But at the end of the day, what did he say? He counted all as loss, dung, waste. He could not reconcile with the holy God. He could not obtain a right relationship with the holy God. He came to realize that the required righteousness came one way. And that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Philippians 3. And here's the deal. When you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ... And you believe that he went to the cross and he died for your sins. His righteousness, his perfect life, his moral perfection, his record that's needed and required has been imputed to you by faith. Abraham learned that lesson. And Christ's uh, excuse me, perfect record of righteousness is imputed to you and your salvation therefore is complete and secure forever. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, that's everyone in this room. For our sake, he, the Father, made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. You see, this extraordinary gift of righteousness is secured by Christ's perfect obedience and death on the cross. The late R.C. Sproul. At the heart of the gospel is a double imputation. My sin is imputed to Jesus. His righteousness is imputed or counted to me. 
And in this twofold transgression, uh, excuse me, twofold transaction, we see that God, who does not negotiate sin, who doesn't compromise his own integrity without salvation, but rather punishes sin fully after it has been imputed to Jesus, retains his own righteousness. In other words, he's been punished, and yet Jesus remains righteous. And so, R.C. writes, he is both, God is both the just and the justifier. My sin goes to Jesus, his righteousness comes to me in the sight of God, end quote. That's the righteousness and salvation of God. That's what's necessary for our salvation. So listen up, he says. God's past faithfulness gives us hope for the future. Listen up. God is the one who delivers his people. Listen up. We've been secured. God has secured our future by his own righteousness and by his own salvation. Now it's time to wake up. Look at verse 9 with me. And we get to the third point. We're going to go right into communion or soon after. So, Verse 9. Awake, awake. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generation of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea and the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea away for the ransom, excuse me, for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransom of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Verse 12, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the son of man who is made like grass? Have you forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth? And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy? And where is the wrath of the, uh, of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. Verse 5, 15. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadows of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Notice in this portion, there's two parts, two different people speaking too. Verses 9 through 11 is a call of Zion, God's people, for God to do something. Verse 9 through 11. The second is verses 12 through 16, it's God's response. Declaring that they need to stop being afraid of their enemies. Let's look at that first section. Look at the double imperative, awake, awake. At first you read that and you're thinking, who's speaking? It's actually God's people, the Judeans, requesting that the arm of the Lord be their strength and to do something. The same arm, verse 4, that will judge the people. The same arm that is the hope of the coastlands who wait upon God. Now the Judeans are saying, and God's people are saying, come and deliver us now. I, I don't think... And you may think otherwise. But I don't think awake, awake in verse 9 is meant to be irreverent. But you've got to ask yourself the question. If the promises of God in the past is enough to make, not make them, but show them they should have faith in the future. Why here are they, are they saying, 
well, you know, that's wonderful. We get it, Isaiah. We get God has been faithful in the past. And we get now we can have, you know, God be faithful in the future. Abraham, the future coming of the king, uh, the servant of the Lord, the ransom of the people rejoicing. We get all that. But what about right now? Awake, awake. Do something now, Lord, to deliver us. That's what's going on. I mean, we've heard of how he has done it in the past. We hear how he's going to do it in the future, but we're in bondage now. And I think, I, 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 you know, try to think through this and pray through this. I think there's a mixture of, of genuine faith and a genuine troubled heart. Sound familiar? God's not doing it now. Sometimes it's not so much our faith that's in question. Sometimes we struggle with timing, don't we? Lord, I know you can do it. Just hurry up. Lord, I know you created the heavens and the earth. You hold the stars in its place. But I really need to answer now. Not faith, it's timing. We have to believe that God's timing is perfect. He knows what he's doing. His timing is perfect. He knows what he's doing. Isaiah is speaking with the voice of the people and calls on God to act. Now, like the good old days, verses 9 and 10, Rahab is really a term for Egypt. Piercing of the dragon really is, is, is according to Ezekiel 29, is figuratively speaking about the defeat of Egypt. That's, I mean, look at verse 10, the, the terminology of the crossing of the Red Sea. It, it is pointing to what God has done in the past again. It's a rhetorical question, verse 10. Was it not you who dried up the sea during the, during the Exodus? Was it not you, you know, uh, who, who made the depths of the sea away and, and redeemed? We, we passed through the ocean, I mean, the, the sea, don't you remember that? You could deliver us. It was you. We know that. Do it now. And then you get to verse 11. And I'm looking at going, okay, Exodus 10, power, sovereignty, deliverance. And verse 11, Isaiah just jumps again to the future. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. And I'm looking at this going, okay, everlasting joy shall be upon it. Glad it. Again, this, this, this redeemed family coming back to worship the Lord in the end. And I'm thinking, all right. But then I see what Isaiah is doing, what Isaiah is doing. He's showing them and he's showing us that the hope for the future is faith in God of the past. He's showing them and us that the hope for the future is faith in God of the past. He has done it in the past. We could trust him in the future. A day is coming, family. Brokenness will be no more. Again, pain and grief will end. There'll be overwhelming Gladness and joy, joy upon their heads. It's, it's a picture of this radiant, untarnished, permanent happiness. And Isaiah is pointing to the work of the servant of the Lord, the beauty and the glory and joy of gladness of the redeemed and the ransom. It'll be like a crown on the head of the suffering servant of the Lord, the death of Christ, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's reminding them. Verse 12, God speaks now. Awake, awake, verse 9, there's people speaking to God. Verse 12, God speaks. I, 
I am, double pronoun, self-existent one. I'm the one, yeah, I redeem the people. Yes, that's me. I'm going to redeem them in the future, verse 11, that's me. But look what it says here, verse 12. I'm the one who comforts you. I'm the one who, I'm the one who will breathe life into you now. I'm the one who will breathe life and hope and strength and encourage you now. Why are you afraid, verse 12, of men? Maybe it's because you forgot the Lord. I love the way the, the Lord turns it around. They've been complaining about being forgotten and being rejected. And the Lord said, you know what? Maybe it's you. Maybe because you fear so many people and so much that's going on in your life, maybe you're the one that forgot. And maybe that's really a matter of disbelief. And God reminds them, look, I'm the creator. I'm the maker of all of you. And if you could just remember that, You wouldn't live in constant fear of the oppressor. Even though they're trying to destroy you. Listen, there are people trying to destroy people. (laughs) There is, is in a sense, wrath and destruction all around us. But God reminds them that he is sovereign over all that. And he is to be feared uh, above all people. Verse 13, where is the wrath of the oppressor? Not that there is none. They're in captivity. The point is, they don't have the final say, family. Oppressors don't have the final say. Enemies of God and enemies of us don't have the final say. History will show itself that God will have the final say. His plans will take place. Don't be afraid of tyrants. That's what he's saying. In verse 14, a a, a promise. Look at the promise he gives them. In verse 14, he who is bowed down, it's oppressed, shall be what? Speedily be released. Their rage against God's people, I get that. The backdrop, of course, is Babylon. But what he's saying here is more than that. Family, listen to what he's saying. All the bondages of the human race, up to and including the greatest bondage of all, the bondage of sin, self, death, and hell that alienates us from God has been conquered by cross, by the cross, by the atonement. And when you stand, listen now, when you stand assured of your salvation, when you, when you are standing in the gospel, that your righteousness is not your own, your salvation is not your own, something that's been a gift from God, you will say with the Apostle Paul, who has gone through all kinds of hardships and difficulties, he says, don't lose heart. Do not lose heart. Though outer, our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension or comparison. And we get to the last part here, verses 15 and 16. God speaks of his power again. The Israelites would not perish because of who their God is. Look at verse 15. He is the Lord. He's the Lord your God. Covenant name of God. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the Almighty One. Uh, nations will rise and fall, although th- that may be true. He is sovereign over that. He's even over, sovereign over the sea, that its waves roar. Can you imagine? God is sovereign over the seas. God makes the waves come and go over the seas. His omnipotent power not only oversees the world, oversees the seas. The earth is the Lord's, right? Psalm 24. And in all it contains, in true and lasting boldness, True and lasting boldness. Uh, We do away with fear. We are bold in the Lord because we are firm in the gospel. We stand firm in the promises of God. Philippians 1, Paul tells the church, (laughs) 
Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Stand firm. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Stand firm. That's what he tells them. One mind striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightening in anything by your opponents. There's boldness in the gospel. There's fearlessness in the gospel. We can face anything when we're secure in the gospel. Christ is our righteousness. Salvation is our gift. And notice in verse 16, and we'll, we'll, um, we'll, we'll move on to our next point and go to communion. Notice in verse 16 something, because I know this is going to come up in community group. There seems to be a change. Verse 16, I have put my words in your mouth. Okay. Whose mouth we're talking about? I've covered you in the shadow of my hand. Establishing the heavens and laying the foundation of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Hmm. You are my people. Seems to be a change. Verse 16, some people say, some commentators say he's talking to Israel. I put my words in your mouth, Israel. In other words, Israel now has become the mouthpiece uh, uh, that has the, 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 the word of God. Okay, I, I don't think so. Look at the last verse. Look at the last part of that verse, excuse me. I put my words in your mouth, covered you, and then he says, saying to Zion, you are my people. So we can't be talking to Israel. I put my words in your mouth, Israel, so that you could say to Israel, you are my people. It can't be Israel. But remember what we've been saying over and over about the servant of the Lord and the role of the preeminent role of the servant of the Lord. He's sort of in the backdrop of all that's going on, and we see earlier that the servant of the Lord is the one commissioned, a divine spokesman in chapter 49, verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Chapter 50, verse 4, the servant of the Lord is one who's been given a tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with this word him who is weary. Look at this. Also, it says, hidden you in the shadow of my hands. See that part in verse 16? Covered you in the shadow of my hands. Speaks of the servant of the Lord again. In chapter 49, verse 2, it says, In the shadow of his hands he hid me. So who's he talking to? God, uh, let let me just quote, let let me just read what Oswald wrote. I have it in my notes. The servant stands in the background of every address of the people, uh, of the Lord to the people. It is as though the Lord is speaking to the people with the servant looking on. But at this point, the Lord turns to address the one who is never just an onlooker, but is himself the participant, God with us. In other words, verse 16, the father turns to the son and he says to him in the midst of this, I'll put my words in your mouth. I'll protect and watch over you. In fact, establishing the heavens speaks of the new heavens and a new earth. He's talking about Christ. He's talking about the work of the gospel. He is talking about the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He's talking about the ransom of the Lord rejoicing in the new heavens and a new earth has been given to Jesus. We need to wake up. And finally, we need to stand up. Look in your Bibles again. Now, verse 17, wake up, wake yourself up. Verse 9, God's people say to God, wake up. God turns around in chapter 51, verse 17, says, no, you wake up. That's what it's saying. Wake yourself up. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. That's what he's saying. In other words, there's this, 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 I don't need to wake up. Y'all need to wake up. Not only should you wake up, but you should stand up. 
and recognize that the cup of punishment that you've been drinking has been taken from your hands. Wake up, stand up, recognize what's coming. The days of of chastisement and judgment is over. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs all the way to the bottom. The bowl, the cup of staggering, there is none to guide her among all the sons she has been born. There's none to take her by the hand. What you need when you're drunk to be taken by the hand, but there's nobody there. Verse 19, these two things have happened to you. Who's going to console you? Devastation, destruction, famine, and sword. Who's comforting you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Hmm. This is not just Babylon. There's something greater that God is talking about. Something the servant is going to do. And as we move to the Lord's Supper and we see this wrath being poured out, look at verse 21. What's the first word in verse 21, somebody? Therefore. What is therefore? Therefore. You would think, therefore, you bunch of idiots, go to hell. That's what you would expect. The wrath of the Lord, right? Drunken, a cup of staggering. Like, therefore, you're done. Smoked. That's what I would think. But look what he says, therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says the Lord Adonai, almighty, sovereign, master. Thus says the Lord Adonai, the Lord Yahweh, covenant God, Elohim. All three words are in there. Who pleads the cause of his people. (laughs) The therefore is God's kindness. The therefore is a turn from wrath to grace and mercy. It it involves the, the reversal of God's wrath on Jerusalem. Amazing. Now he's not the one who's pouring out wrath. Look what he is. He's the one who pleads the cause of his people. I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. Now, look at the text. There is absolutely nothing in this text, nothing in this text. No reason for this switch. No reason for this change. No reason that grace would be afforded to them, none. And yet, we know God's wrath does not simply evaporate. God's wrath deserves and demands satisfaction. The wrath of God, the settled, unchanging anger and displeasure and opposition to sin always perfect, always just. Wrath is just a response to rebellion. It doesn't just go away. What happened? Well, centuries later, the servant of the Lord came. And in his incarnation, he took on flesh and became a man. The servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, faithfully served his father perfectly and obediently, proclaiming the word of the Lord, following the law perfectly obedient to all that he's been commanded. And we find this servant of the Lord in the garden of Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal, the night before he would be crucified. And he calls to his father and he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this what? Cup. Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will. I'm in perfect obedience to you, but thy will be done. It is the cup of the wrath of God. The servant of the Lord is taken out, whipped, beaten, and nailed to a cross. And Mark tells us that the darkness came over the land. 
so dark you couldn't see in the ninth hour as judgment and the wrath of God is poured out on the perfect spotless servant of the Lord. And then in the ninth hour, we know that Jesus cried out and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as the father could not look at the son as he was bearing the sins of the world, the darkness made it impossible for anyone else to see him. And in that awful moment when the majesty turned his back on him, the repulsed garbage and sin was splattered on his son as he bore the wrath in our place. Jesus was forsaken because we deserve to be deserted. He endured the darkness and abandonment and judgment so we don't have to. He was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. He went through the darkness so we can have light. He was condemned so that we can be forgiven. That is how God's wrath can be replaced by grace. Sinful man is totally incapable of satisfying God's justice except in eternity in hell. There's no service, there's no sacrifice or gift anyone can offer to appease the holy wrath of God. His perfect justice was satisfied in the work of Jesus who lived that perfect life we could never live and died an atoning death in which we deserve. That's what this communion table is remembering of and a communion of. As the band comes up, family, I want you to know that's the reason God the Father sent God the Son who came into the world to make a sacrifice for sin, an atonement to propitiate, to avert the wrath of God as he took it upon himself God does not and will not justify or declare righteous sinners righteous on their own. It has to be through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. He was perfect and lived that moral, perfect life that we could never live. He died as an atonement, therefore, and shed his blood for our sins. And because he has, by his grace, his holiness then is imputed to us. And the turning away of the wrath of God has been taking place on the person of Christ on the cross. So let me ask you, are you resting in the finished work of Christ this morning? Are you resting in the finished work of Christ? Are your eyes fixed upon what awaits you for the future? Are you have hope in that future? Are you seeking your own righteousness? Are you resting in the perfect moral record of Christ? Take comfort, he says. Take comfort in the salvation of and the righteousness of Christ. This cup, this bread, represents his broken body. His body that was broken for us in his perfect life. His body was broken so that we can have life. And his blood, which was shed, so that we can have forgiveness of sin. Salvation is both. God's righteousness imputed to you. Stop trying, you'll never make it. And his blood that was shed for you. The band's going to lead us in some music. We're going to take communion together. We're going to come down these end rows here and then just go back any way you can get there. And then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful of all that you have done in the past. Whether it would be the the redemption of, of your people through Egypt whether it would be the work that you've done with this new, uh, this, this uh, return from exile of Babylon. But Lord, ultimately it is the exile from sin, death, and hell that you called us out of by the perfect life and the blood sacrifice of Jesus. Help us, Father, to repent well. Help us, Father, to confess and repent well. Help us, Father, to, to rejoice well 
for the joy of the Lord will be our strength. Lord, that we can just celebrate who you are and what you've done in the gospel. May we rest upon you. May we look to the future and have our hope just really resting in all that you have done, all that you will do, and in the perfect work of Jesus, our Savior. So, Father, as a congregation, as we sing, as we prepare our hearts for communion, we pray that you would get glory, we would be filled with joy, and that, uh, Lord God, uh, everything we do, including our response in this moment, Lord, will bring honor and glory to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.